I am Charlotte Kassaragi, and in partnership with the House of Chanel, I present to you the Les Rencontres podcast. As part of the Rendezvous Littéraire at Rue Cambon, this podcast spotlights the birth of a female writer. You can listen to the various episodes and their authors on your preferred streaming platforms. Happy Saturday. It's October 29th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. We are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. Ashley, welcome to, I learned a new phrase this week. It's hollow weekend. It's the weekend of Halloween. The full-on branding of Halloween just always keeps continuing here in the U.S., but it's going to be three days of, I'm sure, adult parties with kids attached to them leading up to the big Halloween on Monday. So I know you're not a costume person, but I'm just pointing this out. Look, you're trying to position me as a Grinch here. I, uh, I'll i take my kids trick-or-treating fine because then I can steal their mini Reese's peanut butter cups. But we have a bit of seasonal confusion here in the UK because this is one of the biggest surprises of moving here is we start decorating for Christmas in October. So you have on one hand nutcrackers in the store windows and then cobwebs on the streets. So anyway, it's very confusing. But you know what I'd like to have, Michael? is a holiday of the news in the UK. Like, we finally have an adult in charge, thanks to Rishi Sunak, and it looks like the ship has been righted, at least for now. So we're going to take that stability, focus on the festivities, and get with the program. Your prayers are answered, Ashley. We've got a great show today. We have Stuart Heritage joining us from the UK, where he will tell us all about the madness of Charles III and his battle to flip the script on the new season of The Crown, as well as what's going on with Rishi Sunak and the new government there. We also have William D. Cohan to tell us why Bill Gates hates Beanie Babies. And we have Alexander Marshall in France reporting on the latest problems of director Roman Polanski. It's a great show. Where would you like to begin? I mean, we really have it all. Yeah. (laughs) We have it all today. Michael, from Beanie Babies to Roman Polanski, I don't think you could ask for a more all-encompassing news program than that. We run the gamut here, but I think we should probably start over in the UK with Stuart. And because, look, as we said, we've got Rishi right out of the gates this week, right? Yeah. I mean, what a difference a week makes. We had Stu on last week. He predicted Penny Morton would be the PM, although he admitted at the time that he was probably going to be proven wrong immediately. I mean, but that is the pace of news here. It is shocking. And we find ourselves in a dramatically different position. The pound is slightly more stable. The word on the street is calmer. It turns out we were ready for Rishi after all. And we have Stu Heritage here to make sense of it. Stu is a writer at large for Airmail. He also contributes to several UK newspapers and is one of our favorite people. Welcome, Stu Heritage. Okay, Stu, what a difference a week makes here in UK politics. We've got a new PM. It turns out we were ready for Rishi after all. How do you make sense of all this? How do you find that it's unfolded? It's going so quickly. Everything's changing so quickly. I've found the best way to cope with it is just to sort of completely detach from it now and just let it wash over me because there'll probably be five or six more prime ministers by Christmas at this rate. So it's nice in a way because he got a turn in the end. Rishi ran in the last leadership competition, didn't win, had another go. Now he's in. So who can say fairer than that? Well, the markets liked him. I mean, despite the fact that I think we can all say that what was her name? Liz Truss. Yeah, she was one of our favorite political <laughs> figures. Certainly. I mean, just for spectacle value alone, we sort of loved her, right? I mean, I hate to say it. She was, yeah, well, I don't know. She's sort of, it's it's like you say, it's it's now that it's it's been 
just a few days since he's been Prime Minister, it seems like Liz Truss was just never in power. Everything's stabilised. The, the banks aren't panicking anymore. The Conservative Party aren't in open rebellion, which they were a few days ago. So yeah, I think his job is mainly at this point just to calm everybody down because it was berserk. And even, I think, in retrospect, it's going to seem even more crazy than it was. I think now we've all got sort of, at least the, the British people have all got a collective sort of PTSD from it and we've, we're in shock still, so we just we haven't really reacted to it properly. But when it sinks in, I think we're all going to be able to look back and just wonder what on earth happened. Well, with Rishi, it seems like you've got 45 days for this trust and basically a $300 billion bet that went, as the guys in the market say, TITS up. And it sort of paves the way for he's now the youngest prime minister of the modern era, right? But I think the other thing that's provocative to some of us is he has a, a very powerful wife and there's sort of this new power couple in the UK. And rumor has it she's also basically wealthier than King Charles too, right? I mean, she comes from a ton of money. Can you just talk about that and how that's sort of layered onto all of this new world in the UK? Yeah. I read this week that his family is literally twice as rich as the king, which, I mean, when they meet every week, and that has to be the first time probably ever that 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 dynamic's been in place, where the king has had to kind of, he hasn't had all of the status in the room. I think politically, it might come back and bite Rishi, because when famously during, I think it was the general election, he, part of his campaigning was trying to look like a person on a normal salary. And he drove to a supermarket in a car that it turned out he borrowed from a supermarket worker. So it looked like a normal car. And he tried to pay for something with a credit card, contactless, and he didn't know how to. So it makes you worry a little bit that he's not going to have the best interests of sort of the common person in charge. But he's definitely, I'd take him over the last woman to have the job, 100%. I think I've said this the last two or three times I've come on. Everything he said about Liz Truss has completely come true. Like he said, if she says this, the markets will do this. And he was completely right. So yeah, it, even though he's the youngest prime minister, and it, I'm still younger than him by a matter of weeks. So I, at least I can still cling on to that as my youth. But yeah, it feels like the grown-ups. And there's a grown-up back in the room. Well, Stu, there's also more big news coming out of the UK today. And that is that after a long wait, there is a release date as well as a title that has been announced for Prince Harry's autobiography, Stu. What is it going to be called? It's going to be called Spare because he is the spare. Here, I just <laughs> want to point out, he might not have a title, but the book has a title. So, you know, he's we got one thing going for him right now, right? Yeah, that's nice, actually. That's Cosmic Balance has come back in to restore some sort of credibility to. It didn't have a publication date for such a long time. And publishers very famously like a long as lead in as they can. I've got a book coming out in 2024 and that date set in stone. So that's miles away. And all of a sudden they've just recently, I think the Queen's death, of course, first Harry and then the publishers to get a bit jumpy that there might be some sort of backlash. But yeah, now it's coming out and I think it's January the 10th. So this book is causing much drama with Charles and the family and got this book on top of the more recent book that came out in the UK and now in the US called Courtiers. And you've got Charles and the family basically trying to flip the script on the crown and what's going to be in Harry's book. Why is the family so nervous about Harry's book, especially? The way it's been billed since he's first signed this deal was that it was going to be his chance to tell his truth. And from everything we've heard from him since, since Megxit, his truth was just monumental axe grinding against all the people in his family. 
The most recent news is that since the death of the Queen, he's been frantically watering it down to try and remove any sort of contentious tracts from it. Which seems strange because that's the that's surely that's the only reason why people are going to actually read it. No one wants to read a book about a prince having quite a nice time. But Prince Harry's writing about people who pretty much everyone on earth knows. And the things that he says in the book will be front page news for weeks or months, maybe. So if he's nervous, I kind of get it. But I want him to stick to his guns a bit because I want a really juicy... He's also writing, as we've noted before on the show, with J.R. Moringer, the author behind a great memoir called The Tender Bar. And Moringer, he ghost wrote Andre Agassi's book and a couple other people. He, in his sort of, he's very well known for kind of zeroing in on that psychological space between fathers and sons. So, I mean, even though it's a prince and a king, it's he still, I'm sure, pushed Harry to look at that. And Harry, of course, is no, he's done plenty of time on the couch and analyzing these things. So I'm sure he's now in that moment looking at the final pages and like, what did I put here? That's going to be the power of it if he has it. Whatever he says has to be sort of backed up and reaffirmed by the Netflix docu-series that he's making with Megan that's going to come out next year as well. So it's going to be a twin-fronted assault. And then speaking of Netflix, let's just set up the trifecta here of stuff, which is now you've also got the new season of The Crown coming out. And you've got, Mm -hmm. as you so gloriously note in your story this week, it's about we're getting up to modern times and now everyone's got their knickers in a twist because it seems not everything went according to history, but also, boy, they're really going to come after King Charles, who was in his Prince Charles bad days here, right? Tell us more about that. Since The Crown started, this is the sixth season, I think. But since it started, not much has really happened in it. It's covered 40 years of royal territory. Not an awful lot's happened. There was an entire season where Prince Philip was on a boat, having a nice time on a boat. And maybe Princess Margaret would get sad a couple of times a season. But nothing really happened. But this season is the blockbuster event of The Crown. There's the Windsor Castle fire. There's Charles and Diana divorcing. There's Prince Andrew and Sarah Ferguson divorcing. There's Princess Anne and whoever Princess Anne was married to divorcing. So there's divorces, fires. Obviously, Princess Diana's going to die probably at the end of the season. It's a really fast, high-powered series of television. But the problem is, is that unlike most of the other seasons of The Crown, almost everyone in it is still alive. So there's apparently a scene in the first episode where Charles, Prince Charles, goes to see John Major, who was the British Prime Minister in the 90s, to plot sort of a forced abdication on his mother so he could be the king. And John Major has been super outspoken about it, saying that it never happened and it's a completely fiction. And a few other people, Jonathan Dimbleby, the journalist who interviewed Prince Charles, his version of like the Big Diana interview in the 90s, he's also said that a lot of it's nonsense as well. So you've got all these figures who are still alive for the first time in the Crown's history, pointing out it's a load of rubbish, which is, so I think it's sort of the point of the Crown, is that it's a fiction, it's historical fiction based on headlines. Thank you for pointing that out because it is, let's just remind people, it's never pretended to be a documentary. Exactly. As Peter Morgan has always said, it's based on history, but the dialogue is all invented. So you're already in a place where, and as, as Peter says, he said many times, like he likes to be in, think about what happens in the rooms when private conversations happen, those audiences with the queen and now the king. And so I just think it's hilarious to me that people are like, it didn't happen that way. And you've got Dame Judi Dench and other 
other people saying this is wrong. You've gone for drama. It's going to be dramatized. So by the way, Judy Dench has won. She wanted to have a disclaimer put at the start of every episode saying steady on guys. This didn't really happen the way we're telling it. And she's won. And now apparently in, in the new season, Netflix it will have to start each episode with a card being like, hey, dummies, listen, this isn't true. Everyone calm down. I think, do you remember Diana the Musical? Did you watch that on Netflix last year? We missed that one. I don't watch car crashes like that, but why don't you tell Stu? Because I feel you did. No, I loved, I loved it. It was like The Crown. It was a completely dramatic retelling of Princess Diana's life. And the fact that it was a musical made it a thousand times less tasteful than if it was a high prestige Netflix drama. And yet nobody was sort of making demands for them to put a disclaimer at the start. I think it's a mixture of all the jumpiness around it. It's a mixture of a lot of the people still being alive. I think probably the violent of Princess Diana's death has a lot to do with it. And also, I think we're in this still in this heightened in this country, this heightened sort of patriotism because... We just watched a really, really long, very stately state funeral for the Queen. So everyone's still, I don't know. I think feelings are stronger now than they would have been if this had come out in the springtime. But I'm going to watch it. It's going to be fun, I think. It's going to be fun. It also just makes me think, Charles, as you note in your story this week, has been trying to flip the script a little bit on this Netflix on the crown. But can you just talk for a moment then about the book, The Courtiers, which depicts him, he's got to be angry about this. And it seems so some things come out when Charles gets angry, he's not a happy guy, right? Likes to kick furniture and do other things. Yeah, it's a fascinating book. It's the members of the court, the advisors and the equerries who run the palace, who basically keep the royal family on track. And it seems very, very well sourced. And a lot of it is just sort of given over to the temper tantrums that all the various members of the royal family have. Charles especially seems to have just a sort of a hair trigger temper. And that there are passages in it that describe him sort of going on these 20 minute tirades against his staff, kicking furniture for just very sort of trivial things. Yeah. And obviously Prince Andrew comes out of it terribly. Harry and Meghan come out of it quite badly. Prince William seems to get quite an easy ride. For some reason, there's there's one paragraph where they said he sulks about something once. But aside from that, it seems like he was either judiciously navigated around or he's just a very sort of harmless man. I don't know. But yeah, it paints them all in quite a bad picture, which is good. That's back up. It's back up evidence. Well, Stu, it looks like we have a lot more to discuss on this front. I hope for all of our sakes, it's not next week because we've had so much UK news. We all need a period of relative stability. I think one week is as much as we can possibly ask for. Yeah, I'm sorry on behalf of the country. (laughs) We accept your apology graciously, Stu, but I have to say it gives us a lot to talk about. (laughs) Good. And that's the main thing, right? Thanks for being here, Stu. Okay, Michael, moving on to more cuddly matters. We've got to talk about Ty Warner. You might be thinking, is he the star of the hit show on the CW? No, he is not. Ty Warner is the billionaire behind Beanie Babies. He is also a real estate impresario, and he's currently enmeshed in controversy with none other than Bill Gates. Bill Cohen addresses all of this and much more in his latest feature for Airmail, and we're very happy to have Bill, one of our writers at large, here to tell us all about it. Welcome, Bill. Well, it's great to be back here with you both. Thank you for having me. Bill, I haven't heard that much about Ty Warner since the late 90s when I was collecting Beanie Babies. I'm embarrassed to admit it. Tell us a little bit about this guy and why we should care. There are two surprising things. Number one is that even though basically Beanie Babies have gone away, his plush toy business has not gone away. He still makes them. They're called like Beanie Boos or something like that. They like are sort of like Beanie Babies kind of on steroids with 
gay guys or something and squatter and they show up in toy stores all, all over the place and he still runs that company and owns all of that company even though people don't even realize that anymore and the other surprising thing which nobody probably realizes is that he's got this collection of six or seven luxury hotels that he owns and some of which he manages, including the San Ysidro Ranch in Santa Barbara, where the Kennedys had their honeymoon, where I have actually been with my wife many years ago. It's a beautiful place. And he also owns the Four Seasons Hotel on 57th Street in Manhattan, which has been closed since the pandemic, even though other hotels all around the city have reopened, of course. And Bill, this is where he comes into conflict now with Bill Gates, another billionaire. And just explain for the readers, like, why that hotel is still closed and why Bill Gates is so upset with Time Warner and what these two billionaires are going to do about it. So there's a phenomenon in the hotel industry where you can own the real estate, but hire a hotel management company to actually run the hotel. And Four Seasons, which people think of as owning hotels, there are plenty of Four Seasons hotels around, including two in New York, in Manhattan, one on 57th Street, one downtown. But, but they really don't own the hotels. They are a hotel management company. So they put their names on hotels and they staff hotels and they manage hotels and they run them on a day-to-day basis for long-term contracts. And the Four Seasons Hotel Management Company is owned by, of all people, Bill Gates through something called Cascade Investment, which is one of his investment firms. It's owned by Bill Gates and who owns like 70 plus percent. And it's also owned by, of all people, Prince Al-Walid bin Talal in Saudi Arabia, who I once wrote a profile about in Vanity Fair, as an aside. And a few years ago, Bill Gates bought out half of Prince Al-Walid's stake in the Four Seasons Hotel Management Company at a valuation of $10 billion. So Bill Gates owns about 70%, Al-Walid owns about 25%, and the last 5% is owned by the original founder of the company. So why are they fighting? They're fighting because Ty Warner does not like the long-term contract he signed with the Four Seasons Hotel Group to run the two hotels that have they're in his group that are under the Four Seasons banner, one in Santa Barbara and one in Manhattan on West 57th Street. And I guess he's decided that he'd rather keep those hotels closed than to continue to pay the Four Seasons Hotel Group to run them and manage them, which includes hiring all the people and food preparation and the people who clean the rooms and clean the hotel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which is, of course, a unionized workforce. So there's a big dispute between the unions, Ty Warner, Bill Gates, the management company. And so as a result, there are barricades now in front of Four Seasons Hotel on on East 57th Street, which was, of course, one of the most premier hotels in Manhattan. And when Ty Warner bought it, it went for the highest price per room that a hotel had ever gone for. Bill, you write in your story that this battle could go on for quite some time. Do we have any sense of optimism that it could reopen? You'd rather have it be closed and kind of lose less money than have it be open and lose more money. 
And so I guess they'll just sort of play this out. I'd say we're in a stalemate for quite a while here. I would point out too, as you note in your story, I mean, if, if you want any indication on how unpredictable and dramatic Ty Warner is, Ron Howard as you note in your story, is now directing a film about and based on his life, starring, and if this will give you an idea of casting, and Zach Galifianakis will play Ty Warner. So I think that's a very different sort of character than who might play Bill Gates, but it's, it would seem to indicate to me that that's the kind of unpredictable force you're dealing with here, right? Oh yeah, we're talking about a iconoclastic kind of guy, sui generis, marches to his own drummer, which of course is why he created Beanie Babies in the first place and made a big success out of them and even though he kind of pulled the plug on it probably smartly in 1999 he kept the toy company alive he still owns it he never took outside investors it's a great story which has been written about by zach bissonette whose book is the basis of the ron howard movie which is in now post-production and as you mentioned with zach galifianakis so playing ty warner i don't think there's a bill gates character because i think obviously this fight with bill gates is post all of the Beanie Babies phenomenon. So it's wild. Then he lives in a house on the coast of California in Montecito that is supposedly worth $400 million. And he's also in a big fight with his longtime common-law wife. Now they're in litigation with each other. So, I mean, never married, no children. Interesting fellow. Interesting guy. Well, we hope for your sake, Bill, that the hotel reopens eventually. I need a midtown office. We're doing our best, Bill. We'll try. Thank you. Okay, let's get this open. Fingers crossed. Bill, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Can't wait for the next. See you later. Bye-bye. Okay, well, always great to hear from Bill. I'm going to think twice before I buy another Beanie Baby after hearing that story. Yeah, and I think I'll wait to see the movie and see where Zach Galifianakis takes us. Anything Zach's in, we're here for. Okay, speaking of movies, there's a film I haven't seen called An Officer and the Spy. It's the latest film by Roman Polanski to be released, and it turns out that Polanski is more beleaguered than ever. And even a new memoir by his wife, Emmanuel Senier, can't fix it. And we've got Alexander Marshall here to make sense of it all. Alex is based in Le Perche, a charming region west of Paris in Normandy. And yet she managed to make it on the show. Thank goodness. Alex, welcome. And thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you so much. It's nice to talk to you guys. Okay, so Emmanuel Senier used to be one of our favorite actresses. She is also the wife of Roman Polanski, and now she has published a memoir that's getting a lot of buzz in France. What is The Hullabaloo about? It's a very intimate memoir, and I want to preface this by saying that she married Roman Polanski when she was, I think, 18. She claims he has a wonderful husband to her, and she finds all of the hullabaloo around his legal problems and everything else a little quizzical, and she suffers greatly for it. And I think compassion is a renewable resource and we don't need to, we can feel sorry for her. What she describes in this memoir that just came out a couple of days ago is she starts it in 2009 when, if you remember, Polanski was arrested in Zurich where he went to accept a Lifetime Achievement Award. He was arrested on an old warrant in the United States. Switzerland and the U.S. have kind of a, extradition treaties are a little complicated, but things had started to change with banking secrecy laws. And it sort of seemed like maybe the Swiss wanted to do the U.S. a solid. And so when Polanski went to this film festival, the Swiss and the U.S. conspired, got together, 
whatever, put out an arrest warrant and he was taken to the pokey for two months in Switzerland and then ten, eight more months in house arrest in Stad, where he and Emmanuel Senye and their two children have a chalet called Milky Way. So Emmanuel Senye's memoir starts with his arrest in Zurich and she is completely surprised and freaked out by it. And basically at this point, her life kind of starts to fall apart. At this point, her two children are, their two children are in grade school and it just turns their lives upside down. And this is understandably traumatic and very difficult for her to deal with. So things get weird when the book comes out, when she starts doing the press rounds for the book, maybe a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, and the journalists are asking her in fairly hushed tones on, you know, amber lit sets where she gets to speak a lot and there isn't a whole lot of pushback. Still, they ask her about the various accusations that have since surfaced against her husband from other young women who there are now five in total who talk about, who recount incidents from the 1970s and one in the 1980s. So these are all fairly long ago. Nevertheless, in the wake of the 2017 Me Too kind of radical revolution that happened in our culture, they all sort of came out. And Emmanuel Senye doesn't really know how to address them well, according to maybe the current parlance. I don't know how to put this best, but she went on TV and she said that her husband was too adored by women to need to rape them. You can't say that anymore, Emmanuel. Like, I kind of wonder who edited this book. Well, it's from a decent publisher and she actually wrote it herself. She's not a nut job. It's a moving book from a human perspective. She just doesn't know how to, which is understandable, I guess, but she doesn't know how to surface her story in the public while also giving Polanski's accusers their due, which is kind of what Me Too requires of us now, is to just at least take on board what accusers are saying and try to give them some kind of respect and understanding. Like Ruth Madoff or many of the other spouses out there who have come out and said, and Emmanuel Senye says, I know my husband. He's been a good husband. She talks in the book about how he does the dishes and takes the kids to school and he's a lovely man and has been faithful to her since they married in the 80s. And that's her point of view. And she's always said as she's toured on this book that her point of view is all she wants to share. But then when people start to ask her about where things run up against the long arm of the law is where things get a little complicated because she also has Anne Polanski together. They have a sort of, it feels like the goalposts move quite a lot when it comes to talking about the law and where they stand in relationship to the law. Another element that you touch on in your story is where Polanski stands in terms, not only reputationally, but in terms of his business, his ability to get his films financed and distributed. Tell us what's going on on that front. Well, now his latest film, which just wrapped was and filmed in Stad, where most of the time he and Senye and their kids, or he and Senye at least live, their kids are older now. There were protests outside the shooting and there was no French investor for the first time in so many years. He didn't. And remember, he won a Best Director Award in 2020 for his film, An Officer and a Spy, which was a French story and was actually a really good movie starring, among others, Emmanuel Seigneur. So do you think, I mean, we know that America to a certain extent has turned on him, but France was for many years the last holdout. Do you think that's changing? It's totally changed. No French investor in his latest film. In 2020, when an officer and a spy was awarded at the César Awards, which is their Oscars, there was a walkout by the French actress Adèle Hanel, who herself was up for an award, who may have even won that year, for A Girl on Fire, a very 
talented, beautiful, and quite hot, in the movie parlance, quite hot actress in 2020, who, when Polanski was awarded his Best Director Award, got up and walked out and clapped her hands, leaving the stadium or the theater and walking in. The cameras followed her as she walked into the loge saying, Vive la pédophilie. So, and then outside of the theater was a massive banner with a lot of feminist activists that said Polanski best Caesar award for best rapist 2020. It's interesting to hear some of these personal details, even if morally speaking, you kind of read them with a bit of a feeling in your stomach. Well, it's a fascinating book. Your take on it is even more fascinating. So we thank you so much for sharing it with us and we can't wait to talk to you again soon. You're welcome. Thanks for calling guys. (laughs) Thanks for being here, Alex. Always Alex, always for you. We'll talk to you again soon. I'm not feeling very confident that we're going to see this new movie either, Michael. Yeah, I have a feeling that's going to get hard to get distribution. Polanski and Woody Allen. What company? Okay, well, so before we go off into that good weekend, do you have any movies currently in distribution that you can recommend or anything at all will do? I actually do. And it is a new movie from Martin McDonough called The Banshees of Inishirin, and it stars Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell. McDonough, as you know, is the award-winning Irish playwright who occasionally dips into movies, as he did with the Oscar-winning film Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri, as well as a great movie from 2008 called In Bruges, which starred Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, who are in this one. And they're back in this black comedy that is sure, I think, to be a contender for awards, especially for the performances of both Gleeson and Farrell. The story is deceptively simple. It's set off a small island off the coast of Ireland in the 1920s. Gleeson and Farrell are two friends, and one day Gleeson tells Farrell over drinks at the pub that he no longer wants to be friends with him, and he has no reason other than he just doesn't like him anymore. And Farrell just cannot accept this. It sounds like a very simple premise, but in the hands of McDonough, we get a film that is, this is the engine for a plot that sets off on a range of questions and emotions, and without spoiling it, some pretty bizarre behavior. Now, Farrell is terrific as the simple farmer who's so gentle, he even lets his donkey into his house to share his meals. And Gleason's performance is equally brilliant and keeps you on the edge of your seats for most of the film. But as always, McDonough fills the scenes with these crackling dialogue that gets to the essence of life and gives you plenty of dark humor. It's a tragic comedy that, as I said, will keep you on the edge of your seat. It's called The Banshees of Inishirin, and it's in theaters now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that's all for today. Thank you so much for joining us. We love you. We miss you. And we'll see you next week. Michael, will you please read us out? Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, and Julie Vitale. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram on Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music or wherever you get your podcast. But most of all, thank you for joining us.